0: Hello, everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you.
1: Our Common Ground pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages. On March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not.
0: There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love.
1: So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with, he's just not that into you?
0: A hundred (laughs) percent, yeah. Oh my
1: God, I'm there.
0: (laughs) So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 20, Hagrid's Tale. Harry sprinted up to the boys' dormitories to fetch the invisibility cloak and the marauder's map from his trunk. He was so quick that he and Ron were ready to leave at least five minutes before Hermione hurried back down from the girls' dormitories. I'm Casper Ter Kyle.
1: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
0: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, this week we're reading the chapter through the theme of peace, and it's your turn to tell a story.
1: It sure is. So people often ask me how I ended up at Divinity School. Fair question. Atheist Jew. I went to business school first. Confusing. And I never really have a good answer because I do feel like it was like 15 years in the making and it wasn't one clear thing. But what I can say is that it started when I was 14 years old and read Les Mis by Victor Hugo for the first time. This book blew me away. The opening 100 pages of the book, there is this really intense moment in which a priest opens his home to an ex-convict and he serves him dinner and he invites him to spend the night and the the guest in the middle of the night steals the silverware from the house and he's like if i just steal this i could change my whole life and i could live a different life and he gets caught by the gendarmes by the police and he gets brought back to the priest and the gendarme says to the priest he says this man says that you gave him the silverware and the priest says Yes, of course I gave him the silverware. Not only did I give him the silverware, but Jean Valjean, you forgot the most precious piece and gives him something that Jean Valjean decided not to steal. And this just blew my mind as a 14-year-old. The idea that you could respond to violence with peace and not only with peace, but with something more than peace, with an almost form of restorative peace right not just with saying yeah i gave it to him but adding a layer of generosity to that he says not only is it okay that you stole from me but you are clearly someone in need so i will give more to you i think about that moment whenever i can catch myself wanting to respond violently to violence of saying okay Is this a moment where I should be defending myself or is this a moment where the other person needs something and I can just not only give them what they are demanding, but can give them even more than they are demanding and hopefully disrupt this pattern of violence through peace? And that is why I went to divinity school was to try to train myself to recognize those moments where I can safely disrupt violence through peace. And so I love that story of that priest. And I have not achieved being able to do that once. But that is why I went to divinity school was to put myself in conversation with moments like that.
0: I think it's so interesting to read this chapter through a theme of peace, especially as the war is starting to get really real, like we're seeing it with the giants and I love that idea that peace is about interrupting a cycle of violence, right? Like a very self-explanatory reaction would be for that priest to say, like, yeah, no, he stole my stuff. Like, that's not OK. And I hope you don't punish him.
1: Right. But that is my stuff.
0: Right. Like uh, you can be like, you know, I'm not going to press charges, but thanks. I'm going to take the silverware back. He's, he goes that extra mile, which I think speaks to the way in which peacemaking is just as active as war making. And it's often just invisible, like we don't see that. So I'm excited to see where we can find it in the chapter this week. But before we do that, Vanessa, let's remind ourselves what happened.
1: On your mark, get set, go. Go.
0: So in this chapter, we hear Hagrid comes back, the trio run down through the snow, the snow, um, and they're underneath the, you know, the, the the thing. But Ron is now big, and so it's difficult. But um, Hagrid starts talking, and um, it turns out he and Maxine like went first to the south of France on like a, a, a fake move, but then they actually went through Minsk like all the way east, and there they meet the giants, and they give gifts, and the, it's going well, and then suddenly there's a giant revolt, and the big guy gets killed by another big guy. Um, and then it's really difficult, and McNair gets there, and they find... Like, Seven. Oh, that was.
1: You did a great job.
0: You know, okay.
1: For part of the chapter.
0: Vanessa, 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go.
1: Um, Hagrid has all sorts of injuries that he keeps avoiding explaining what they are. Fang is really excited to see the trio. He's like drooling all over Harry's lap. And the other thing that happens in the chapter that you just didn't happen to get to yet is that suddenly there's a knock on the door and Umbridge comes. And Umbridge is like, Hagrid, I'm going to have to see how you teach and where were you? And there are all of these footprints leading up to the cabin. What's going on? And then she leaves and Hermione is like, Hagrid, you really need to do a good job teaching. And they uh, go back up to the castle, but they make their footprints invisible.
0: Uh, What a dream team you and I are.
1: I know. I wish I was us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's genius.
1: So Casper, where did you see this theme of peace in this week's chapter?
0: I was really interested, even just the way in the whole story is set up, right? The giants have clearly been kind of chased away out of mainstream wizarding world society. They're up in these caves, in the mountains, far away, you know, that's one strategy for peace, which is like, right, I wish you well far away from me. (laughs)
1: Sometimes that's the best you can do. (laughs) It
0: really can be. You know, if you just aggravate each other. I don't think that's the situation of what happened between giants and wizards. It feels like there's more complexity.
1: Well, especially because giants don't do well living in clusters amongst each other. Right. Right. So it's like an unnatural way to have them living. It goes against the way that they would set up their own society.
0: Yeah, you can see them being actually very violent with each other because they're put in this kind of false structure because they've been chased out of their normal landscape as as you can say. So that was interesting to me just to think of distance as a strategy for peace. I mean, and you have it across space, but you can also imagine if you're having a real argument with someone, sometimes the best thing is just to take like some time out. Time could also be a distance, you know, and which helps at least lessen violence, if not itself, bring peace.
1: I love the strategy, which gets to your distance and time point of Maxima and Hagrid show up and then they go away. Yes. And they're like, we will prove to you that we keep promises and that we're not here to intrude, right? There is so much strategy in this peaceful act. I think that we're getting more sophisticated about this, like in classrooms, you can't just declare something a safe space. Mm. That's not how safe spaces are built. And There's more and more acknowledgement that you can't just come and be like, look, I'm half giant and I come with a gift. Now be on our side. We're done. Right. There's like a real humility to the fact that if you are going to be an ally with someone, there has to be a real relationship there.
0: Well, and he's actively peace building, right? Like that takes time and it takes effort and it takes consistency. You know, that kind of trust that you're speaking to. I love that. Yeah.
1: And it also takes sacrifice. Mm. Something that I I didn't mention in the Les Mis story is that the nuns who live with the priest are annoyed because Jean Valjean took their cookware and they are now going to have to cook with wooden spoons with like not as good of tools, right? There is a sacrifice at stake with Jean Valjean getting all of this stuff. It's not just shiny silver. It's useful materials. And Hagrid and Maxime are making all sorts of sacrifices. Who is headmistress of Bobaton right now?
0: I'm suddenly thinking about the whole context in France. What about the French ministry? Is there a sort of Umbridge en français? Like, is there someone who's a head investigator at Beaubaton? Umbrige. Umbrige. Oui, je suis umbrige. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm really taking away from what you're saying is that, you know, peacemaking is not easy. Like, I think that's the thing we we should really interrogate is is how we think peace is passive or, or it just happens, right? Unless there's something bad. No, it's something you really have to work for and that you have to be willing for other things not to happen, right? There's no headmistress at Beaubaton. And that's because she sees there's a bigger mission here that I need to attend to. Yeah. So here's another way of looking at the same scenes from a different lens, which is that one of the things that in history I always found so fascinating and worrying was the way in which World War I broke out, for example, right? It's this kind of strange domino effect where one existing set of treaties involved another country. And now because of that country's involved, there's two other countries that are bringing Brought into this conflict. And in some way, you could look and see this kind of ambassadorial expedition as a way of actually involving more people in a localized conflict, right? We're dragging in the giants into our wizarding war between Voldemort and Dumbledore. And so, is this actually something that's not peaceful and we're involving more people in war?
1: Yeah. I mean, this just gets back to like any theory of original sin. This is a broken world, and so to some extent, only brokenness can be used to fix it, right? Mm. Like there's a Kabbalistic idea of stained glass, right? And you can you can make something really beautiful out of broken glass, but you're never going to be able to put the pieces of glass back together. Mm. But it, it can be beautiful in a totally different way. But Voldemort is going to be going for the Giants anyway, and the Giants have already been sent out into the country and are already killing each other. Like, I think it's about slowly crawling our way toward peace and knowing that you're going to scab up your knees while doing it, but that— that's better than the current state. Uh, A man who's had to go to prison for 19 years being able to start up again is a bigger win than the sacrifice of the nuns having to cook with wooden spoons. At least that's the math that this patriarch does, right? And that's the math Dumbledore is doing. And I think that what's so brilliant about Dumbledore sending Hagrid and Maxime, it's important that they are half giant, right? Like their identities are important as diplomats in this moment. We know all of the sort of like neuroscientific studies that people are more receptive and more empathetic to people who look like them and to people who come from similar backgrounds. And while that's something that we want to fight within ourselves. and We want to empathize to wider and wider communities. This isn't necessarily a moment where you want to be calling on the giants, not only to engage in a diplomatic relationship, but also to go over the additional hurdle of dealing with people who look nothing like them.
0: Imagine Dobby just arriving with like a large moose to drop on a giant's head. Like that's not going to work.
1: Right. <laughs> I pictured an actual moose, the animal, by the way, (laughs) because the king of the giants wants goats and stuff. I was like, Dobby would bring a moose. Uh. But yes, or a moose like the dessert. Fair point.
0: The the other thing that I do think is interesting is that so often movements today and movements in history are called peace and justice movements. But there's some tension within those two, right? Like, do you want peace or do you want justice? You know, in this situation, it would be easier to kind of let the giants stay in their own world and doing their own thing, even though, you know, as you, you've acknowledged, like that they've already been sent away from their original home. Or do you want justice, which means, like, you've got to build your army to take down Voldemort. And that means involving more people in conflict. That's not an easy decision to make.
1: And what's really awful about it is that it is often up to the victims of situations Mm. to decide whether they want peace or justice, right? Mm. And it's like, do I want to just stop fighting this fight and sort of let them have their way? And therefore have a certain level of quiet and acquiescence and peace, a
0: version of peace, not a true peace. Right. Do I accept the payment from the big corporation that, you know, poisoned the water or do I want to fight and take them to court? Right. And so
1: it's often the people who are the most vulnerable who have to make that decision. Mm. It just gets back to like this original brokenness that we're always trying to fix. Mm. So, Casper, I'm really curious about what you make of the the leader of the Giants. Hagrid is explaining to the kids that he and Maxime went to talk to the leader, and Hermione says, how did you know they were the leader? And Hagrid says, oh, well, that's easy. Who's the biggest, the ugliest, and the laziest? Sitting there waiting to be brought food by the others, dead goats and such. And I just thought, like, how do you have a peaceful society when— It's like clearly that the violent person becomes the leader, right? The person with the dirtiest tactics become the leader. And I'm just I'm asking for a friend, not because (laughs) of my country, you know.
0: I mean, it really strikes me as interesting as well that, you know, nations, if they're democracies, will choose a leader of one sort for one time and another sort for another time. For example, Churchill is always kind of beloved for his wartime leadership, right? He was the leader Britain needed during the war. But when he was prime minister again afterwards, he was much less successful because he had this kind of brusque uh, elitist uh, approach, which was just not resonating with Britain in peacetime. And so I'm wondering, have the giants allowed themselves to be ruled by this one figure because in this moment they are already in stress, Mm -hmm. right? Like that they already feel like they're at war because they're not safe in a different time when they were perhaps like, you know, pre-Columbus America, was it this kind of network of different clans that had uh, really intricate kind of self-governance, <laughs> you know, mechanisms, yeah. but because they've been attacked and they've been chased off their land, they're having to revert to like, okay, who's the biggest and who's the strongest?
1: And we'll just pay them our goat and right. move on. I That is such a beautiful way to read this. And it makes me think that the stress that our country is under right now is that white men are afraid that they're being replaced. And so they're like we will put our most violent leader in charge so that we can keep chanting you will not replace us.
0: Yeah, we had a meeting. It was uh <laughs> 2015. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry I'm sorry I didn't tell you about it.
1: Yeah. No, I mean Jewish <laughs> yeah. woman. I was super ding, ding. not invited. <laughs> Casper, something else that strikes me about why this is such a beautiful attempt at peacemaking here is that even when they, like, quote, unquote, fail, Hagrid and Maxime are able to go back to the cave and discuss things together. And I find that when I am stuck in a difficult situation, the thing that I need is is a thought partner and I think that the kids keep asking, like, why were you gone so long if you were only there a few days? And Hagrid constantly has this refrain of an answer of, like, well, we didn't give up, did we? It's so much easier to give up when it's just you because if you don't come up with an idea, then you're done. But the fact that there are two of them there together I think makes this a real peace mission rather than just one person.
0: I love that so much. And I think this is where I find something about the Mormon Church of Latter-day Saints super fascinating, right? They have these missions that young people go on, and you always go two by two. And I think in some ways you can look at it as a control mechanism, right? One is there to like make sure the other one stays in check. But really, I think it's about accompaniment, because we all know that if you're traveling, there's going to be hard times. There's going to be moments when you want to give up or when it, you don't have any energy. And there's a natural balance that plays out when you're feeling low, I'm going to feel pepped up and give you my energy and the other way around as well. And so I think especially for a peace mission where you're so reliant on your own capacity for patience, for going through something hard, you should never have to do that on your own, whether you're facilitating a group or hosting a podcast. Like, it's just better together.
1: Oh, yeah. I would never have done any of this (laughs) if I didn't. I've become a completely codependent person. right?
0: (laughs) So here's another thing that struck me. Hagrid is really bruised and battered when he comes back. And the trio are very concerned about what's happened. Umbridge, by the way, is not at all concerned. But Hagrid has this piece of dragon steak meat Mm. kind of put over his eye to stop the swelling. And we hear about the green dragon blood like dripping on his face. And I found that just a very striking image, first of all. But secondly, I wondered if there was a metaphor hidden within this moment that obviously... He's stopping swelling, right? He's making something less bad. He's making something maybe peaceful Mm -hmm. using this hacked piece of meat from a dead body of a dragon.
1: Dragons, which he loves. Yeah. It's not like Hagrid is somebody who sees dragons as violent, terrible creatures. Right. He's like, come to mummy. Yeah,
0: exactly. It struck me just that moment of, of violence is actually doing this very peaceful thing of healing Hagrid's body.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, right? Surgery is violent. Chemotherapy is violent. Taking antibiotics is violent, right? You're killing all of the healthy bacteria in your body in addition to the unhealthy bacteria, and you're doing it for good. But healing is a very violent thing. Mm. And, and again, I think this gets back to what we were saying earlier. It, it means that there's sickness. Part of the reason that I loved the first Fantastic Beasts movie was— is because it was right after Trump's election that it came out, and at the end they do this Reparo spell where broken New York City gets put back mm. together, and I found that image so hopeful and so healing. The idea that you could take something broken and tr- truly make it like it was before, but that that is a magical idea that that is not the way that things usually works, right? And I do believe that sometimes something broken can be put back together and be stronger than ever, but it's never the same. And so, yeah, it makes sense to me that Hagrid, of all people, is going to have to sacrifice a dragon in order to heal himself.
0: Yeah, and, like, sacrifice his face to build some sort of relationship or heal the relationship with his brother. Spoiler alert.
1: So, Casper, I have a question. Uh Uh-huh. How does Harry know what broken ribs look like?
0: Oh, this is when he walks into Hagrid's house and he sees the way Hagrid's walking.
1: And we get inside Harry's head and he says that he suspects that it's broken ribs. Oh. I just wonder if when we meet Harry with the Dursleys, as abusive as they still are, they haven't been more abusive in the past. I've spent a lot of time with Harry over the last couple of years, and there are no broken ribs.
0: I just assumed it was from the Quidditch pitch.
1: I'm just concerned, right? The ability to diagnose Mm. something takes a certain amount of knowledge, right? The ability, if you're trained as a doctor, it means that you've cut up cadavers. The more experienced you are as a doctor is because you've seen more and more sick people, And so the fact that Harry can diagnose Hagrid and be caring toward him, I think, comes from some sort of experience. And it just worries me what that potential experience is. I don't think a 15-year-old should be able to recognize broken ribs.
0: I mean, what it makes me think, Vanessa, is that in order to peace build, you actually have to be very, very precise about diagnosing what type of conflict it is. You know, you can't just go in there and like, let's be nice to everyone, right? Maybe it's about really dealing with a very specific thing, just like a medical diagnosis might might include. So even just thinking about how Harry is trying to like figure out what the hell is going on, right? Why is Dumbledore like not never talking to me? What's going on with Umbridge? And now here's Hagrid who's coming back with these stories about giants. Like this is just another piece of the puzzle that he's trying to diagnose in order for his own well-being, but also now, at this point, for the broader safety and, and peace of, of the whole wizarding society. <laughs> Vanessa, it's time for our penultimate chavruta. And I have a question for you, which is, Does Umbridge know that the trio are in Hagrid's cabin? She really is making use of space, right? She's very suspicious. There's three tracks through the snow. She can figure out who those three people might be. And she's looking under, you know, chairs and all sorts of things. I think she knows they're there. I think she's trying to scare them as much as she's trying to scare Hagrid. I I don't know. I just get the sense that she's kind of playing them in this scene, Umbridge says at one point, I shall, of course, be informing the minister of your late return. And to me, that also sounded a little bit of like a threat to the trio, saying like, I inform the minister of everything I know. I know you're here. Like, this is going straight to fudge.
1: Yeah, she knows the trio is there for all sorts of reasons, right? Like, they've already revealed themselves to be protective of Hagrid to her. And she says to Hagrid, like, I heard voices and he's like, oh, I was talking to Fang. And he, she's like, oh, is Fang talking back? <laughs> so I completely agree with your theory. She's here to terrorize, right? You don't show up at someone's door late at night with any reason other than to absolutely terrorize them, right? This is like off hours, he's in his own private home. Like it's on the grounds of school, but like give the guy a sense of privacy. Like this cannot be normal faculty behavior. The thing that I will say is that she is correct. She's not morally right. But she is correct that three students are out of bounds of where they're supposed to be after dark, late at night, they went in the invisibility cloak, and, like, Hogwarts lets these three kids run amok. And this is a conversation that we've had before in terms of Snape, but, like, she is correct.
0: This is really interesting, Vanessa. I've just thought about a connection to our conversation before about Maxim and Hagrid going as a duo on their kind of ambassadorial peace building mission. And Umbridge is on her own. And in moments like this, I feel like she could be so much more effective if she was in a duo. And especially when we think about the Caro brother and sister later on and the way in which they really build a kind of terrorizing grip on the school that even Umbridge doesn't quite manage at this point. It points to the Havruta question of like, she can know something is going on, but she can't really act on it on her own.
1: And she, I mean, she knows that to some extent, right? Because she's constantly traveling around saying fudge, Mm. right? And so even though he's not physically there, she knows that this is an imagined authority if she doesn't have the ministry backing her up.
0: Right. Absolutely. So for the second half of Havruta, do you have a question that builds on mine?
1: Yeah, so my follow-up question to you is, why isn't Hagrid scared by her? Mm. You know, Umbridge is validating her own authority by saying fudge, but then the, the kids are validating her authority. They're like, no, she is up to no good here. Even after she leaves, Hermione is like, no, Trelawney's already on probation. Please listen to me. And he seems unflapped by this. And I'm wondering... What that's about. And I think that there are a lot of possibilities for that. The one that I'm thinking about is that he's just come back from traveling. And when you come back from traveling on like something like a peace mission, your scale of what an actual problem is— <laughs> Is bigger. And it's like, okay, so I get fired from Hogwarts. Like, Dumbledore's not actually going to let me starve, right? And I'm a part of this larger mission. Lessons, plans, like, who cares, right? That he's just has a little bit more context than you get when you're in this like fishbowl of the daily life at Hogwarts. He's sort of
0: unterrorizable. At this point, I love that, and I think it's definitely the most likely. I see two other options, which I could believe. One is that he's just not aware. Like sometimes Hagrid is not the sharpest tool in the shed, and he's he hasn't gotten any owls. Right. He's totally out of the loop. Right, his face hurts. He's tired. Right, like he is not able to take in information right now.
1: Yeah, I actually think that that's a great point, <laughs>
0: yeah. which happens to all of us. The other option which would be really interesting is if he's come back with an express mission to test the boundaries. What if he's been instructed by Dumbledore to, like, not be intimidated? He wants to counteract a culture of acquiescing to Umbridge, not necessarily by being aggressive, but by not kind of, like, molding into her way of doing things.
1: I just wonder if sometimes that is the best peace option, is to ignore someone's attempt to terrorize you. And again, this goes back to something we were talking about earlier, that it's often on the victim to have to decide how to handle these situations. But if somebody's teasing you in school, the way to take power away from a bully is to just not let them bother you. And obviously, we should be interrupting this behavior of umbrage and of bullies. But by ignoring them, especially in front of the kids— yeah, I guess I also wonder if this is, like, a pedagogical move of, like, I'm not going to let this woman change my lesson plans. Like, I have something that I've been working on for a really long time, and this little woman is not going to come in and change all of that.
0: Yeah, I've been cultivating a herd of festivals for years. You're not going to take away my moment. Don't rain on my parade, Umbridge.
1: Right. I don't know why that this, like, is reminding me of the, like, pogroms in, like, Eastern Europe. In the early 20th century against Jews of this just like coming in the night just to scare you. Mm -hmm. She seems so sinister to me in this scene. And I I love Hagrid's response to it. I also love Hermione's response to Hagrid's response of like, I will come back tomorrow. Right. Like, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure Hagrid doesn't get fired. But I love that he does not let her get to him in this moment.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful.
1: Also, he's newly in love. And, right, like, when you're in love at the beginning, like, nothing bad can happen to you.
0: That's my favorite of the lot. (laughs) Our voicemail for this week is from Felix Moore.
2: Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. I've just been listening to your episode about Chapter 17 of Order of the Phoenix. and, And I was just thinking about what Vanessa said about the staircase that prevents boys from getting into the girls' dormitories. I, I can't speak for the US, but in the UK, there's um, at the moment, there's a lot of really hateful discourse about women only spaces in the context of trans people and particularly whether trans women should be allowed in them. And a lot of people suggesting that trans people pose some sort of inherent threat to women's safety. Um I can't help but wonder how that staircase defines maleness, like, for example, would a trans woman be able to access the girls dorms? And uh, what happens? What about a non binary person? Or uh, if someone has a fluid gender identity, where they sometimes identify as male and sometimes don't, does that mean that they can only sometimes access their own bedroom? I I think like a lot of real world situations, this is one where the principle of protecting women against male violence is a good one. But in practice, it's a lot more complicated than that. Anyway, I'd, uh, I'd really like to hear your thoughts about that. Felix, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to nuance that conversation, because I
1: do think that we just sort of went on a brief tirade. I choose to believe that the slide is entirely woke to the fact that, like, trans women are women and are inclusive to trans women and that the slide knows all of the statistics, of course, that trans people are more likely to be a victim of a crime than a perpetrator of a crime and therefore would immediately lower a slide to protect a trans person rather than exclude them. But, no, you're absolutely right that that is something that we did not get to in this conversation
0: And I just want to say a huge thanks to everyone who's emailed us and left voicemails about this. There's also a beautiful conversation that happened on Instagram. So I just love our community, like, getting together to nuance both the text and sometimes what we have to say about it. So, Vanessa, it's time for us to offer a blessing to someone in the pages of this chapter. And we haven't talked about him at all, but I want to offer a blessing for Ron When he and the trio first see Hagrid and they're like, what on earth happened to your face? Like, are you hurt? Are you okay?" And Hagrid keeps kind of, you know, swishing them away and saying, no, 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 it's fine. And Ron says, like, would you say it's nothing if I turned up with a pound of mints for a face? Which I just love because it reminds me of when people kind of insult themselves, sometimes jokingly, and a friend can respond saying like, don't talk about my friend Casper like that, right? It's like, it's it's basically applying the way you would treat someone else to yourself because it's so easy to kind of let yourself come last and not look after yourself in the way that you need to. And so, you know, we don't always think of Ron as, as a caregiving character. And I love that here he's really standing up for Hagrid in a way of saying like, don't fool us like that like we care about you. Let us hope. And I just I just love Ron.
1: I love that moment too. <laughs> I'm so glad you called us to that.
0: How about you Vanessa? Who are you blessing?
1: I pick Hermione. <laughs> <laughs> Good pick. Thank you. Um, but I'm going to pick her for, like, something that happens in the very first paragraph, which is we find out that she's wearing one of the hats that she has made. It's not like she's giving the house elves her cast-offs, right? I feel like she's willing to walk the walk in a way that often when people engage in work that they consider to be charity work, they're like, oh, well, you're lucky to just be getting X, Y, and Z And she's really owning the fact. She's like, no, like, these are hats that I would wear. And it just did remind me, even though it's very different, but it reminded me of the pussy hats. And so I feel like Hermione probably started the women's march.
0: (laughs) At least an inspiration. Mm Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and support us on Patreon. Leave us a review on iTunes or send us a voicemail. We'll be so glad to hear from you. We also hope you can see us at one of our live shows in Orlando, San Francisco, in LA, or for our weekend at the Omega Institute.
1: This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was brought to you by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Tarquile, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paizau and Nick Boll, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. Next week, we will be doing an owl post with Professor Stephanie Paulsell. This week, we'd like to thank Felix Moore for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Danny Agan, Maggie Needham, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you all, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thank
0: you. I just love that idea that you could be like two people in one. Yeah. Do you know what the spell would be if there was a magical way of making that happen?
1: Huh.
0: When two become one.
1: Uh, girls. When two become one.
0: When two become one. (laughs) You've got to have that little beat in there.
1: Oh. Leviosa.
0: Leviosa.